intended. Turns out they can just go to Ross Payton role-playing public radio and listen to the panel they've just attended. Does that mean we all have to talk in calm, even, public radio voices? I can totally do the NPR lady voice. No, it's, it's, it's role-playing public radio, so... <laughs> Does that mean we have to talk? That's like local public radio. Nerdy, <laughs> public radio voices. And now, someone who's going to tell us what they're doing at the community center. Well, that's public access. There's a world of difference. <laughs> <laughs> it's times well, like this that the administration's well, almost, policy. Yeah, almost four. I thought we'd ask a few questions here. How many people here have uh, GM'd? At least 50 sessions of some role-playing games or other. Only that many. Mm. Well, you said 50, and I think it um, uh, made everyone have to count stuff. (laughs) (laughs) How many have jammed at least 10? There we go. Anybody want to go for 100? Carl can do this all day. <laughs> no, no, no more, no more. No more. That's right. How many of you are players and have no intention of ever GMing anything ever? Okay, okay, we got one. Let's see. One in every crowd. I GMed once, but it was kind of like nailing jello to a tree. It was, you know, pointless and a lot of effort. Mm. <laughs> That's uh... a. <laughs> <laughs> and Slightly delicious. Sweet, you know? <laughs> That's right. And it got your hands really sticky for right. some reason. <laughs> okay, uh, this is putting uh, history into your story. Am I right? Is that the That's name right. of this uh, delightful panel? Um, story. Well, it's history with a Y. Uh, we're doing the um, introduction thing. I'm Kenneth Height. I'm a role-playing game designer primarily. I've also written... Uh, most recently, my, my latest work of meta-history or pseudo-history is The Nazi Occult from Osby, Osprey Publishing, available in the dealer's room at Adventure Retail. I've also written a number of role-playing games with uh, more or less historical content, such as Trail of Cthulhu, which takes uh, Cthulhuid investigation in the 1930s, and uh, The Day After Ragnarok, which is an alternate history set in the post-apocalyptic swords and submachine guns and sorcery uh, future of 1948. So that... Uh, is a uh, is something that came out of history and it's still informed by history even though it's an alternate history and for all practical purposes a fantasy adventure setting. Wait, that's not all real? <laughs> yes, it's all real. According to Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Keith Baker. Uh, I am primarily known for creating the Eberron setting for Dungeons and Dragons, also the card game Gloom. Uh, I've also done just a lot of random freelance role-playing stuff. I did a uh, book called Crime and Punishment for Atlas Games that was dealing with lots of aspects of medieval law. Uh, And, of course, I've done a little bit of writing for Ars Magica. So, like that. I'm Lou Pulsifer, and I'm known more as a board game designer. Britannia is my most well-known game. Um, Also, I've written a book about game design, which is available at the McFarland booth here. And I used to write a whole lot about role-playing games about 30 years ago. <laughs> My name's Jess Banks. Um, I am the sort of operations manager at uh, Atlas Games currently. I'm also a freelance editor. I've worked uh, uh, with Margaret Weiss Productions for many years before that, and also now in my capacity at Atlas. Um, I also um, have degrees in French language and culture and uh, medieval history uh, and 15 years of college teaching experience in history and religious studies and uh, and all that good stuff. Um, 
all of that has been helpful in informing my uh, my ability to fact check at the at the same time as I edit, um, which is especially useful when we get to the Ars Magica uh, line that I'm currently working on. So, yeah, so that's us. So, uh, uh, Justice, I think, was your brainchild. Do you want to start off with sort of opening thoughts and sure. stuff that uh, all people should know about uh, putting history into your story? So my big point for this panel is that um, no matter how far removed you think you've gotten from uh, reality as we know it, the most wildly speculative fiction, the most futuristic sci-fi, the, the most fantastical fantasy you can, can come up with, is still much more deeply rooted in the history and cultures of this planet and these people. Um, then, then you may give a lot of thought to. Um, Star Wars is the Roman Empire in space. What happens when you extend too far and the edges get kind of rebel-y? You know, that's basically, that's basically it. Um, and so part of that is um, not to feed the fact checkers at your table, although you may have those um, from time to time, uh, but to instead of instead of trying to dream up new ideas out of whole cloth, um, history and especially the actual original sources, your primary material, can be an incredibly rich uh, source for not just stories and events and hooks and things like that, but also for characters of all kinds and even things as basic as props. Um, and getting the wording right to make it feel more authentic for players in, in a particular setting or feeling that you're trying to evoke. Um, so that's sort of where I was coming at it from. Um, and so I'm, I guess I'd like to ask each of the panel members sort of how their uh, interaction with the historical record has informed the kinds of games that they write or stories that they think about um, and and how that sort of comes into play for you guys. Would you like to start there, or you want to start down here? Start down. Okay. All right, hit it. Um, obviously, uh, everything that uh, Jess says is correct. In my personal experience, the uh, nice. historical record comes into uh, play two places. Once when I'm doing the design work, whether it's a design for a game that I'm going to you know publish or have published, or whether it's the design for the world that I'm going to run. Uh, the players through. That's the first place that the uh, sort of, you know, facts on the ground have to be developed. You have to figure out who's where, when, what the, uh, who the main bad guys are, who the, you know, the, 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 the antagonists, even the opposition, even if they're not necessarily bad qua bad guys. Um, what they're doing, what are their agendas? People don't just sit around waiting for heroes to come along and thwap them with maces. They are going in a direction, their own direction. And it, since I almost always run something set in uh, Earth's history or a recognizable version of Earth's history, or currently I'm running something in a future history, uh, developing those sorts of stories is a matter of research and extrapolation. And it's, uh, by now, pretty much second, uh, second nature. You look at the location that the uh, game is taking place in, you know, start with a map, start with geography, you know, figure out who wants the thing the heroes want, who wants to mess with things the heroes value, and by the, you, you answer those questions, you have generally two or three uh, possible opposition, 
uh, factions, you can start building those out. Then at the table, uh, the, um, the historical uh, elements inform in terms of description, in terms of uh, lived experience in play. So you make sure to mention what things smell like. You make sure to say if they're in uh, any culture before, say, fifteen or sixteen hundred in Europe, you might mention, you know, a slave coffle coming by. If they're in uh, North America, um, in uh, you know, in, in in a major city up until roughly nineteen forty or nineteen fifty, you mentioned that there's a horse-drawn cart, you know, pulling uh, milk jugs along. Whatever it happens to be that's going to uh, put them instantly in the mind. Oh, right, we're in the past. We're not in you know, our world with uh, a cheap scrim laid over it, things are different than we expect. And you add elements of local color as much as you can get away with without derailing the story into meaningless travelogue and without drowning the players. And that, of course, is just like every other GMing tip. You have to, you know, A, tailor it to your specific players and B, do it until you get good at it. And so those are the two places that uh, historical information or the historical record drive my gaming. So I would say looking to two different ways that it has impacted me. One, uh, as just said, uh, specifically looking at elements of the historical record and drawing those in, you know, I will point to a time when I was doing some work for Ars Magica, and I went and read a number of um, saints' lives, Byzantine saints' lives, and pretty much every story there was something that, not just for Ars Magica, I'm like, okay, this is a scenario in which these people broke a watering trough, you know, into a, um, a reservoir, unleashed evil spirits, which then possessed the people in the town until the saint came and banished them, uh, and turned the people that are possessed into cows, and that is hell cows, the second thing I did for En Route. And there are about half a dozen adventures uh, or characters that are directly inspired by that material of just reading this and saying, that's the craziest thing I've heard. You know, um, there is a man who's living in a cage, uh, you know, just because that's a sign of his devotion. Um, I'm going to put that somewhere. So, you know, I mean, one of these things is like that one in particular. That's an idea I never have thought of. And it's actually a, you know, of course figurative story, but nonetheless, it's right out of history. Um, so that's one thing, is you will find, if you just start digging around, especially into stories from the past, just things that are great ideas to use for tales. I will also then say, then, switching to world design, even if you are not basing your world in our history, even if you are not saying, I want my countries just to be our countries with different names, it is still a matter of one of the best things you can do when you are creating new countries is to look at our world and say, and why did these civilizations succeed? What was it about geography, resources, you know, religion? What was it that made this nation actually become a powerful force? And when I look at my nations, so I'm saying this is a point at which there are six powerful nations. Why are they powerful? You know, what is it that has actually gotten them where they were out of coming from nothing? And when you look at what has made our nations, you know, again, just drop into the 12th century, who are the forces of power and why are they in power? And, you know, there's a lot of interesting things you can do there. And I could continue, but uh, there'll be more time for it. Two things that come to mind for me, um, 
back that 30 years ago, I wrote a column in the Dragon called uh, Roll of Books, where I would take books about history, usually popular books, not always, and suggest how you could get ideas for your adventures and so on from those books. Uh, Life in a Medieval City. Now, yep. if you're using a science fiction campaign, that's not going to help you. Well, not as much. But if you've got a low technology campaign, then that, a book like that will give you a lot of ideas about how things were different and how that can lead to adventures of various sorts. Um, even to simple things like what people ate and how they ate. I mean, they didn't use plates, they used trenchers, which is old pieces of bread. It gets you to think about things in a different way. And that leads into the second part, which is people, in one sense, have not changed, but in another sense, they have, people have changed a great deal over time. So if you go back to ancient times, people believed that there were spirits living in everything, essentially. It's a very, very different point of view. And if you want to have a fantasy game or even a science fiction game with very, very different kind of view, you can look at that and try to adapt it in one way or another. Um, when I think of different fantasy campaigns, I always think of the Take Mail. Absolutely. Pedal Throne, yeah. Pedal Throne. Yeah, that's it. Pedal Throne. Well, that was it's really been, different. It's been, and he wrote it's been some three things. So. He wrote some novels as well, which were very different. That Those people had a very, very different worldview. Now, is that necessarily good for a role-playing campaign? No, because if you get too far from what people are used to, then they start to get confused. So many fantasy campaigns are medieval because people know something about the Middle Ages, even if well, they, they don't really... They know, exactly. something about they, <laughs> they know something about it, even if it's not really true. Like King Arthur, yeah, sure, King Arthur existed. No. Um, <laughs> but people have written books about it, and you can get those books and read them, but it's all crap. Uh, <laughs> in other words, in general, history helps you to think about things in a different way than you are accustomed to. So from my point of view, as a, as a historian, there's something you learn to sort of develop an antenna for. And the word that is used sort of in the jargon of, of history is slippages. The place where something in the record, something is missing. Like you have a sudden abridgment. You're like, oh, and suddenly he's in the city. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, we just left him here in this very thorny, gnarly situation, but we were really not sure. How he, and then suddenly he's in the city. What's missing there? Or when you say that, um, so I'll, I'll give an example out of, out of my actual work. Um, I'm reading along in the Annals of Ulster, I, you know, Irish medieval history, year 778. Um, monk... Philemoth makes uh, kills other monk Philemoth. Oh, who by the way is his father? That's the entry. <laughs> like, dude, there's a world in that. <laughs> Two sentences. Are you kidding me? That's that's huge. I can I could build an entire campaign out of that whole thing. You know, at the very least, awesome content. He was just tired of uh, everyone saying, "No, the other Philemoth." Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this is not even getting into his twin sister, who was also strong in the church. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Exactly. Yes, exactly. sister Philemoth. Yeah. Um, Philemitha. <laughs> So roughly the same facial hair. Yeah. <laughs> History and humor. Yeah. Um, and I also, I, I do also like to look, um, if you are, if you're in the 
a habit of world building or you want to see where how to develop um, a campaign that you're running um, no matter what setting you're in if you say okay so I'm gonna take this one thing and I'm gonna tweak it we're gonna say Empire build 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 uh, you know what happens when the Empire becomes too big to defend its borders well, let's look at the record. Let's look mm -hmm. at all the places in which this has happened because people have been stretching land out like pizza dough until it starts falling apart for millennia now. And so you look and say, well, in this case, they ended up having to hire mercenaries, which, oh, by the way, are the people they're defending the border from, you know, and then, uh, you know, and there are many other options in that in fairness, that plan worked for 200 years. So yeah, it really did. As plans go, <laughs> next one of your plans that works for 200 years, then you can laugh at the Romans. <laughs> so, yeah, so there's that. And then, and then also, um, one of the things that, especially with historical settings and especially with fantasy settings or something that's roughly medieval, this is my particular soapbox, so please indulge me. Um, uh, Quite honestly, diversity is a is a big factor in these games, and um, so having uh, being able to look at the historical record and realize, wow, this continent here was not as white as we think it is, um, and and oh, look, women are doing way more things than just raising kids and tending sheep. Um, being able to incorporate characters that look like your players. Um, is really valuable, and the historical record is actually very much on your side in generating really amazing, complicated, diverse people in settings that have been largely whitewashed by, by the brush of the victors. If I can jump in there for a moment, I will say again on things of slippage and things essentially that are missing... Uh, especially when you are dealing with fantasy as opposed to a historical campaign, again, sometimes that's the most fascinating thing is to say, well, what might have happened? What could you do within your world? So I was in Slovakia a couple years back and went to a early Bronze Age archaeological dig. And essentially, talking to the, the curators about the site, what it was was a city that was one of the early sort of capital cities where they didn't make their own food, you know. Um, and it was a city in a cul-de-sac with the cemetery laid out across the mouth of the cul-de-sac. Hmm. So in order to reach it, you had to walk through the seminary, uh, cemetery. It was a city that never had more than 400 people alive at a time, but they had 700 very well-preserved graves laid out in this cemetery. Uh, they also found, in digging them up, that about a hundred of the graves that they dug up, the corpses had been disinterred about a month after being buried. All their, lave, uh, their grave goods left intact, but their leg bones broken, and then they were reburied. And it's a pre-literate society. We don't know Someone had a cool why play. they did it. But to me, hearing this and seeing it, it raises all these possibilities, like, okay, it wasn't fortified, did they actually think, you know, why did they put the cemetery across the mouth? Did they think it was just going to scare people? Or did they actually think the ghosts would rise up to protect them? 
if or their enemies it, or came was it there. biological warfare any which way and so you know for me that then inspired me to say all right i'm gonna make a city where they build graves all around it and it is the ghosts are who you know instead of our men are our walls our dead men are our walls and so i mean it's things like that that i wouldn't have thought of that but having encountered it i'm like that would be really interesting uh, and you, if you went to each one of us, we would come up with a completely exactly. different reason why that was the case, I'm and, sure. And it's the same case with the breaking the, the legs, you know. Is it they thought, oh, he's coming up and causing trouble? Is it an insult? Is it, you know, whatever. But as I said, it's those things where we don't know the answer, but it makes it so interesting to think about the possibilities. Yeah, and that was sort of what I was going to go between uh, Lee's comment about your point. King Arthur and your point about slippages. One of the great things that people, you know, tend to overlook about history is they think, well, it's history. It's already happened. We all know what's going on. There's no room for adventure. There's no room for mystery. There's no room for fun. Even in a game that doesn't have magic, that doesn't have vampires or superheroes or an alternate history, there's all kinds of room. Uh, there's a book called The Mammoth Book of King Arthur. Uh, guy, I think Mike Ashley did it. He's got 33 possible candidates for King Arthur. Now, as Lou intimates, most of those candidates are nonsense from one direction or another. And we will never know until we lock them all into the arena on Triskelion exactly. and discover who emerges. The emerged. one who wins is obviously King Arthur. But you can now... Anybody wants to program you can that now put, as an MMO, that would be awesome. You, you can now potentially do King Arthur over like a 800-year period with any one of those guys saying, oh, it turns out that guy was King Arthur. Or you can uh, look at uh, areas where you talk about, about slippage, which a lot of times it turns out to be you know miracles. Um, like, Adela the Hun is heading to Rome, and Pope Leo goes out and talks to him, and Adela the Hun turns around and goes away, and all the records say, because Pope Leo's simple, devout purity and prayers to the Virgin saved Rome. It's like, I bet that wasn't it. <laughs> and you can, you know... I want to be in that tent when that conversation more, is happening. More uh, cynical historians say Pope Leo gave Adela all the gold he could care- stagger away under, but... Who knows? Maybe your player characters were there. Maybe they were the guys that set up Pope Leo with the uh, hand of Adela controlling or something. And that's how you do it. And, and that can go all the way down to very modern history indeed. Uh, you can look at things like, why did Hitler stop his tanks on the, on the beach at Dunkirk and let the BEF get taken off? And you, the real, you know, real, honest to God, World War II historians are still fighting over that. What was going on in, 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 during the Vietnam War? There's a million questions still unanswered. Every historical event that you want to look at, there's going to be some place where one historian says one thing, another historian says another thing, and the historical record is either confused or frustratingly silent, and those are the spaces into which you can put game events. You can put your vampires, you can put your magic, you can put your conspiracies. You can do that, and then suddenly you've already got a thing to hang the rest of your story on because you know that whatever else the conspiracy wants, it wants to stop Hitler on the beach at Dunkirk. And I was like... Well, I think the conspiracy was bad, guys. Why would they want to stop Hitler? Oh, my God, are they worse than Hitler? That's horrifying. <laughs> and now you have all kinds of possible... Or maybe the conspiracy is like in league with the reptoids that secretly rule Great Britain, as we all know. Maybe that's why they did it. And now it's like, wow, we got reptoids versus Nazis. This is the best game ever. And I've only started at Dunkirk. <laughs> and that's the kind of thing that you can do with these slippages or these mysteries. As, as, Keith, as Keith put it, there's you know book upon book upon book of historical mysteries. Uh, that you can you know mine for that, or just look at something and say, I don't think that makes any sense. I don't think Adela the Hun just turns around and goes home, and then 
dies on his wedding night with no witnesses three years later. <laughs> None of that makes any sense to me. My history, <laughs> my history prof said they all got the, the crud. All the invaders of northern mm-hmm. Italy got the crud and everybody yeah. left. Who knows? Yeah. Whichever crud, plague, whatever. Magic crud? Could be. <laughs> <laughs> so... Obviously, not everybody has access to a university library. Or a gravesite in, grave in Slovakia. But, I mean, or... you really should just for... Right, right. We'd love Try to burying dead people across your own front yard. It's the same basic principle. <laughs> <laughs> and believe me, you'll get to but play you test our criminal justice far. system. Assuming you haven't got that far in your plan. Um, I'm just wondering uh, if each of you could sort of speak to the places that you go to find um, sources that give you either that color or, um, you know, that wording. Um, You know, papal letters are great for establishing atmosphere. The the Vatican has fascinating turns of phrase. so where do you go to find the sources that you use? Some, you know, like in the most accessible way possible. Yeah, papal letters are not necessarily very accessible. <laughs> They're in Latin, like a big jerk. Um, but you have to sort of mark it before internet and after internet <laughs> yeah. at this point. There's nothing wrong with, with uh, popular history books. And uh, if you get historical atlases that have a lot of text... John Holloway's, for example. You can find a lot there. You don't have to uh, dig very deep to start getting ideas. The deeper you dig, the more ideas you're going to get, and the stranger it's going to get. Yeah. But you don't have to start down there because that's kind of daunting. Just start simple things. You can go into any decent library and find historical atlases and popular histories, things like Life in the Medieval City, a book called Cathedral by David Macaulay talks all about a cathedral. Mm, that makes a really good place for Dungeons and Dragons or whatever you want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to double down on Lou's recommendation of historical atlases. That's what I always start with if I'm not already familiar with the period. I, I, like I said, I, get, I need to get a sense of the geography of who's where, going where, right? Uh, you know, if you've got you know, Adela coming in over the horizon, how long is it going to take for him to get to where the game is going on? Uh, what's, going, what's going to be in his way? What's going to stop him? Who do the players want to go talk to if they don't want to be killed by a million billion Huns or orcs, if that's what they are? Um, you need to, or what I do is, once I've got the general location, find a, you know, a, a, a relatively accessible, relatively thick book with a big index and just start looking for names that I already recognize. If I've got a book about, um, uh, you know, um, let's stick with Adel of the Hun. I've got Adel of the Hun. I go through and I start looking for names that pop out. And there's going to be a bunch of, uh, you know, books about, uh, there's going to be a bunch of lists of names. And they're all going to be Romans. And there's going to be some Huns. And then you're going to run across, depending on the book, it's going to say something like uh, Siegfried. And I'll say, Siegfried? He's from Wagner's Ring Cycle. What's he doing in Adel of the Hun? And it turns out, Adel of the Hun killed all the Volsungs, the guys that the Siegfried myths come out of. Adel of the Hun took special care to go to Burgundia, Burgundy, and kill the entire ruling family of Burgundy just to be a jerk. Or because he knew that they had a magic ring forged by evil dwarfs from the Hollow Earth. I mean, who knows, right? But that's the thing that pops out at me. And I look and I say, all right, the players know who Adel of the Hun is. They know that there's going to be Romans. 
how do I throw him a curveball? And how I throw him a curveball is, oh, the ring of the Nibelungs is in this story, and they were not expecting that. But I literally, I find that in the index. I don't even have to read the book yet, and I've already got my story hook. That's what I do. And, and taking uh, variously accessible uh, books, you, uh, depending on how uh, much fun you have reading history books, obviously, the thicker the history book, the more weird crap is going to be in it. But uh, you can start with, like, like he says, with the Haywood Atlases or with the McEvity Atlases, and they're already going to start you with a lot of, we don't really know why this happened. We don't know where these people came from. We don't know, you know what happened. Or then you'll get to a point where, thanks to this climactic battle, you know, uh, Britain was saved or Spain was doomed or whatever. And you're like, okay, that's the climactic battle that we're going to, you know, pivot the story on. And really, to the extent that I ever have to go to the university library in my neighborhood, it's going to be to find something really obscure that I've already decided the game is going to be about. And I just don't have it in my own library. There was a game that I was running an Unknown Armies campaign. Of course, your own library is 7,000 books. Yeah, it's not nothing. Um, but I, I was running an Unknown Armies campaign, and I knew I wanted it to be in a Templar uh, or an assassin castle in Iran because I wanted it to be in Iran. It was sort of a, a covert ops Unknown Armies game. So I, I have a book called Assassin Castles in Iran, oddly enough. <laughs> Which I imagine most of you do. I mean, and I, and I brought it to the game, and as I'm setting up the thing, I'm just paging through it, and there's a castle. One castle is sitting in the middle of a lake. And I thought, all right, that's nice and magical. That's sort of Arthury. Let's set it in this castle. And literally, I picked it from the illustration in the book, which castle it was going to be. Then I'm looking at it, and the first British survey of this castle uh, said that it had eight sides, and it has six. It's like, all right, castle's changing its geometry. That's all right. <laughs> the second, third, and fourth British survey couldn't find the castle. <laughs> it's an invisible, shape-shifting castle that I have literally just picked based on the illustration. <laughs> the, 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 uh, my, my players, sadly, are n not remotely impressed by anything I do now because it's like, <laughs> you just looked that up. It's, like, it's an invisible, shape-shifting castle. That's not unimpressive, no matter whether I just looked it up or not. <laughs> and I'll just throw in just the, the you know, obligatory uh, sideline, the internet, <laughs> because you have it. You know, and first off, there is just the random throw in two words about the thing that you're curious about and look at, but also you take things like Pinterest these days mm. and just... Go look at Pinterest World War II, find a board. You know, like actually there's World War I, I was just randomly flipping through pictures and it's like there's a picture of a horse in a gas mask. And I just look at that and say, I have no idea what I want to do with this, but I want to do something with this because yeah. it looks awesome. And again, yes, exactly. And that's what I'm saying is again, just randomly looking at old photographs or old pictures. Again, am I gonna do a game set in World War I? No. But I'm totally going to do something that involves horses with gas masks now. That's right. Yeah. You know, so, uh, so yeah, skimming around. Yes, many Bothans died to bring you those files, so go use them. Do we want to, I guess, start taking questions since we're about halfway yeah, through? Unless just, anyone's got any mention, final uh, thoughts? Uh, pursuant to um, Keith's mention of the Internet, um, there are vast repositories of old newspapers local historical societies finally getting their crap together and putting their stuff online. Um, it is 
frankly astonishing what is out there. I don't, I don't do a lot with modern history. I mean, and by modern, I mean the 1700s. Um, <laughs> but um, again, it, you know, it doesn't, the most boring records in the world. I mean, think about it. William the Conqueror, you know, commissions the book. Right, super boring. What could possibly be in there of interest? It's Loads of stuff. Why does this city need a special exception for the beer it brews? Hmm. You know, um, in the early American records, there's a, gr a collection called the, um, the Evans Early American Documents Collection. Um, I get all these bakers in Baltimore complaining to the state legislature that they can't make bread the same way they did back in England. The stuff won't rise in the Chesapeake Bay. And so, you know... There's I think back. Ken has that book in his library. He might. Actually. He might. So there's this. There's. I have some bread that won't rise. And and if you <laughs> and, and if you want to describe your surroundings, you know, you look at the ads that are in a paper from the 30s. You find such cool stuff. You look at the 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 equivalent. The Irish equivalent of the Boy Scouts had a newsletter that was sent around. Can you find it online now? Yes. You know? Yeah. Cool stuff. There's um there's a website that does nothing but put old airline brochures up. And you know, it has route maps, it has schedules, it has times, it has the logos, it has the, the graphics and it you know Because you need that. Right. You don't not need it. <laughs> I, right now my personal my personal passion at the moment is a Tumblr that's just called Medieval People of Color. <laughs> and it's got awesome period art frescoes, sad, you know, sculptures, um, you know, portraits. According, obviously, rich. According to these portraits, King Richard II was blue. <laughs> <laughs> this is not medieval people of color. People, but, um, and let's not talk yeah, about the three possible just, King Arthur. You know, that's right, 33. Statues and, and oh, portraits. Only three of color. Of only three of color, right, yes. That's people a good of point. One was green, though. Who are portrayed as like the stalwart guard at the outside of a castle. It's just cool looking, and it's so nicely compiled. Somebody did that thing. Yeah. So, yeah. So let's. So questions. Questions. Uh, I think Carl beat Ross just barely. Good, Ross. I'll So you say. <laughs> uh, first up, uh, along those lines, archive.org is a really good resource for old public domain texts that are scanned by like automated systems. Like I found the sixth and seventh book of Moses and a bunch of old like nineteenth century, yeah. uh, to early twentieth century occult books that are really interesting. Cool. Uh, and they're PDFs like you can scan them using these handouts for a Cthulhu game or something. Yeah, like, what is it? Is it levity.org or levity.com that has all of the alchemical texts uh, available online? It's levity.something. Alchemy uh, index on the internet. Yeah. It, it, you'll find it. Um, but the uh, question I have is, a lot of times when I'm doing like historical games or games that I like do a lot of research for, I wind up alienating players because like they get lost in it. I know you mentioned, sort of briefly touched upon that, but uh, and obviously a lot of it is sort of player group specific. But are there like any like guidelines or rules of thumb you use for like? This is the right level of detail to keep the players in the game without like, all right, let me get out Appendix B and yep. that kind of thing. And then oh, um, if you're doing an author, uh, which is the king real, the which is the real king author, uh, wouldn't that show be called the Excalibur? Factor? 
Oh, one of the, thank you. I mean, yeah. one of the things I'd immediately throw out. I'm sorry, out, Carl, your question was obviously yeah. much better. <laughs> <laughs> one of the question, things I'd immediately throw out is how does what you're putting in affect the story itself? And that could be on a very basic level, like Ken saying of just what do you see when you were on the street? Or it could be something that is driving the whole purpose of the story, like the castle that disappears every, you know, 100 years. But, I mean, the thing to me is, essentially, why do the players need to know this? Why does this need to be a factor? And if it's something they just don't need to know, then, yes, it may be more detail than you should be worrying about. My rule of thumb is you don't need to know any more than your smartest or your, your most well-informed player does, right? And if you've got a player who begins the game better informed than you, I've run an Ars Magica game, campaign set in medieval Brittany with a guy who actually read Breton. Then use that guy. And so with that guy, I said, Daniel, you are writing the handout and you're playing an elf. <laughs> so I, by definition, can't get uh, Breton magic wrong because you're in charge of it. I, I will just note that in an Eberron campaign I played in, I did actually serve as the bardic knowledge. The game master would just say, you got a 15? Keith! <laughs> so, same principle. Yes. Uh, Roll to see if Clarice will tell you about Egypt. <laughs> yes. And, 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 but my, my rule of thumb is, uh, obviously, it, it, the standard one, stop doing it once it stops being fun. The, 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 the old Henny Youngman rule, which is the yeah. zeroth rule of all role-playing, as far as I'm concerned. Um, research is great fun to a lot of us. Watching other people's research is almost always less fun. Um, if you would not tolerate it if someone were dumping that amount of research into a novel that uh, they were writing about some fantasy world, if you were like, oh, I don't care whose granddad this was, then the players aren't going to care. And you need to either make their granddad a prize. It's like, I've discovered who his granddad was. We can go saw off his legs and bury him in, across the doorway. Although George R. R. Martin will be giving a panel later, I think, about yeah. describing meals. Yes. On, because, you know. On, on how to almost alienate your entire audience repeatedly. Um, but, the, uh, but, but the rule of thumb is don't put in any more than the most informed, most interested player knows or cares. Because too much is going to seem like homework. It's going to seem like, oh, we have to memorize this whole court procedure just to get our stupid swords sharpened. I don't want that. And then they're going to try and break the setting just because they're frustrated children. And that's how people react when they can and they're given that kind of setting. So as much fun as it is and as much new stuff as you're going to find, like Keith said, if you're finding something in Appendix B that turns out to really drive story, make it drive a story. If it doesn't drive a story, just you know, put it on your blog. Uh, put it on the, web, on, the, on the webpage as a campaign handout that may or may not ever be read. I like the iceberg rule. 10% is visible, 90% is underwater. Yeah. And it will still sink your campaign if you run into it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so in terms of dumping research into a novel, would you recommend reading the books of Tim Powers for uh, like secret history in the corners of I, recorded? I, I, I refuse to believe that was your first question, but um, yes, yes, stranger who I've never met, I would recommend reading the novels of Tim Powers as an example of how to do it. Uh, uh, perhaps the most immediately accessible example is a novel called On Stranger Tides, which takes uh, the, ab- the actual knowable historical facts about Blackbeard and turns it into a voodoo story. And with, if you read On Stranger Tides... With Johnny Depp. You don't watch that. 
Um, if you read On Stranger Tides, you will see how it is done. Then you can move to the next level and read Declare, where the entire biography of Kim Philby becomes the doorway into a secret war over the genies of Mount Ararat. And I'll, I'll also put in a word for um, the off. book uh, A Discovery of Witches by Deborah Harkness. Um, it, oh, it's so crunchy with historical detail. I just love it. <laughs> I do believe the name Tinker Taylor Soldier Afrit was taken. It was taken. It was. It was. Taylor Soldier Freak? Afrit. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sorry. Everyone up here having written, obviously. Um, in the context of writing background history that you're either going to publish, hand out to players, uh, how do you know when to not fill in or how to leave slippages? Or you know, how, how do you pick and choose what you let other people, especially if they're going to you know, purchase it and run their own game, uh, extrapolate from? Or how, you know, how, do you, how do you pick and choose that? Well, certainly jumping on something like Eberron, uh, you know, I'll say a key point there is you know, to me, when you're creating something for other people, you know, when you're creating it for your own group, part of the thing is engage the players. Ask them what they think about things. You know, say, hey, Bob, you're an elf. You want to tell me something about, you know, elven songs, you know, or something. Uh, but when you're creating it for other players, it's a matter of wanting it to be something that serves as inspiration instead of limitation. And uh, with Eberron, you know, the big thing is we have the war has come to an end because of this huge magical cataclysm called the morning. And we don't explain it. Because if we explain it, the answer is there. It limits your stories. It is this is what you could do to find out about it. If we leave it hanging as this huge mystery, you can create any number of stories. And for your players, they don't know, you know that answer. And so for me, it would come back to that. What is going to make a story more interesting when you leave it unknown as opposed to less interesting because you have nailed down every fact? You know, how does it create stories? In the case of history, if there's something that the player can look up and then gain an advantage, then probably you should change how you do it. <laughs> or, you know, because reward that player. Will do that. Or, or reward that player. I mean, if you want to make uh, research a, a game mechanic, uh, <laughs> the. Um, which, which you probably do. I mean, there is, there, is a, yeah. there is a terrific game by uh, Jenna Moran called um, uh, Weapons of the Gods, which weaponizes the setting history. So you take a um, uh, you take a you spend points for an advantage, and that advantage is one page out of the setting history, basically. So it's set in sort of a magical fantasy China. So one page might be the Terracotta Warriors, and you paid the advantage, which means you're going to have Terracotta Warriors show up in the campaign. The GM will let you do that. You're going to be have access to feats that let you control a Terracotta Warrior at some point. You're going to know more stuff about the Terracotta Warrior, but because you paid for it, the player did. The player now knows all about the Terracotta Warriors and is always trying to sort of bring that in. You don't have to necessarily play Weapons of the Gods, although why not? Um, but if you're talking you about... You do have to play before we leave this room. But if you're, but if you're talking about um, uh, in, in, in giving the players an incentive to do the research, when someone comes back and he says, hey, it turns out that there's these super wicked double-headed uh, halberds that people used, it's like, great! You can use them. You were trained by the hill folk who built those halberds, and you get a plus two in their use and whatever else. And it's, you should have a sense in your game of what a suitable incremental reward is. And maybe in the hero system, it's just an extra, or uh, Savage Worlds, it's just an extra Benny. Or in hero system, it's just a few extra hero points. But it's a palpable breadcrumb that you're leaving in, as opposed to 
if I learn more about the setting, it's just going to punish everyone. It's going, it's going to punish the, the GM's going to be mad because I, I peeked ahead in the book. The other players are going to be angry at me. Just provide a reward. Make an activity that you want to encourage fun and rewarding and take advantage of activities you don't want to encourage, like being a jerk, and make them unfun and unrewarding. And honestly, if you're running an Eberron campaign, just get me to come over, and I will <laughs> sit there and be your encyclopedia. They roll a 15, they can talk to Keith. He'll, also, he'll be also, passing out his phone number to everyone. So. It's also worth noting that, that the, the more research, the more kind of things that, like, that you can farm out to players like that, um, the more buy-in you get, the more detail you can include. Um, you know, if you've already contributed something to that collective base of knowledge... Um, then you're going to maybe sit for it a little bit longer when somebody else goes into elaborate detail, whether that's your GM or another player who found something really cool, too. In theory, they, they, that's their spotlight. They picked it for a reason. Do you have any more questions? Yeah. yeah um, actually, I was wondering uh, about uh, using historical areas and nations in uh, role-playing, in fantasy role-playing games. How, do you have any suggestions on how to file off the serial numbers enough so that people would go, oh, that's ancient Egypt, and that's, uh, those are the Greeks, and, you know, so they, like, I wanted to have this familiarity without going, okay, it's automatically labeled as this. In my experience, the familiarity is such a great thing that I've never bothered to file the serial numbers off. It's why I roll, run things in Earth or in alternate histories. Okay. So if they say, you know, this is a world in which the Confederates won the Civil War, they know what that means. You don't have to build a separate world with a separate western continent that was settled by chattel slavery below a certain tropical band so that you can have a world where the conjunction of Kragarland won the Civil War. It's like I've gone to a lot of work to actually make it harder to enjoy my game. If what you're saying is I'm playing something like uh, Forgotten Realms or I'm playing Greyhawk or I'm playing Mistara or whatever it is and over the hill I want to put Queen Elizabeth and the Spanish Armada, how do you fix that? Um, I would say that you do sort of as much as you need to do so that your players, I mean, if, if you've got a, 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 a pedant like me who's going to be bitching about, you know, how big the ships are supposed to be, you change enough so that he's wrong-footed and is like, oh, well, the ships are all made out of magical float iron. And it's like, <laughs> there, sucks to be you. Um, and now he, he can't use that power. And so, but you run the risk of frustrating that player. But on the other hand, you've sort of taken ownership of the thing. It's not, well, I've got float iron. Where are the float iron mines? Who's got the monopolies? The, Span the not Spanish or the not English? What's going on with the float iron? Is that what this war is about? Since it's probably not about succession rights and Catholicism? Which comes back to my point of you're making up nations, but still look at what made a nation powerful, what made it succeed as a nation. I mean, those are things that are interesting. The recommendation that I would say is read Robert E. Howard's Conan stories. I mean, that's all he was doing was filing off serial numbers for the Hyborian Age. Stygia is Egypt. Zangaro is um, uh, Spain. Aquilonia is sort of Plantagenet France. All of the Pictland is Pictland. All of that is just stuff that he wanted to write historical fiction, and all the historical fiction markets went out of business during the Depression. And there was one magazine still in existence he couldn't crack because the editor didn't like him. So it's like, I got all this historical fiction. I got nothing I can do with it. And he just starts rubbing out names and, you know, sends Conan to the land of Turan, which previously was the land of Iran. How interesting. <laughs> Brilliant. And you read, a, you read a Robert E. Howard story, and you will know in the back of your head, yes, Shem is Palestine. That's obvious. But 
it's going to take you about two paragraphs to not care because so much more interesting stuff is happening. So just read how Robert E. Howard did it and copy, 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 copy. Or run it in the Hyborian Age. There's a you, time saver. If you do want to file off serial numbers, identify the three things that make that place singular. And then the smell? flip one on its the, head. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes. I can't imagine the, Paris without it smelling like hell, <laughs> honestly. you know, like, like hell. That's a little, <laughs> a little mean to hell. <laughs> um, yeah, just and then just flip more one like of those things on like its head. Um, a really great example of this is uh, the game Fulminata, um, which was written by a couple of classics majors um, who know the Roman Empire backwards, forwards, sideways, everything. Um, and they said, let's throw gunpowder in there. They unlock the secret of gunpowder. Now what happens? And then just let the effects cascade, and boom, you've got yeah, and awesome Romans with guns. That's awesome Romans well, and again, I mean, that's one of the more interesting things to do with fantasy world creation in the first place. Is you know, take something we know and we know how it turns out, and theorize. But what if they'd had arcane magic as it exists in D and D? What if they'd had gunpowder? You know, I mean, again, that sort of exercise is the basis for all kinds of interesting uh, worlds and campaigns. One more? We've got more than one more, okay. unless someone's going to ask a really long, involved yeah. question. Uh, you in the back there? Who uh, next? Rather long and involved answer to this. Uh, the Roman era is very interesting, appealing even to people who play fantasy world campaigns because it's an era rich in mythology. However, for people who want to play it, especially near the end of the Roman era, you have the problem of how to integrate Christianity and uh, existing monotheistic religion and its slow spread throughout a polytheistic religion of gods that we now consider to be false. How would you respectfully treat that integration? Well, if you're setting the game in an actual Roman Empire with actual Christianity, the respectful way to do it is just make sure you don't say that St. Peter was a vampire or whatever. Um, but you have the same exact kinds of stories of persecution and stabbing each other in the face and everything else. That I mean, if you look at real history... The real Christians went almost instantly from being martyred to throwing other people into lion pits. I mean, it was, you know, not even, you know, it took, didn't take Constantine all day, really, to start doing it. <laughs> so the, 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 the actual history is plenty disrespectful to Christianity. And as long as you can, you know, you know, show your notes, people probably will cut you some slack as long as the game is exciting and fun. Uh, if you are saying, how do I do a Roman Empire, because I think Rome is too awesome, but I don't want to deal with Christianity... You can either have a different religion that's a monotheistic religion rising up that's, you know, just say the worship of Saul Invictus, the all-conquering sun, or Mithraism, or just make up your own fantasy religion that you, you know, cribbed out of D&D. It's like, oh, they're worshiping St. Cuthbert. And it's like, really? That's odd. <laughs> but whatever it is, you can write your own monotheism to be supplanting the Roman pa uh, pagan gods, uh, and then you can make that monotheism full of vampires or not as you pick. And so you can control it, and the players will say, well, what, what happened to Jesus in this world? And it's like, dude, it's 298, uh, you know, it's uh, AUC 9-something. You know, those records are lost after two or three revolts in Judea. <laughs> so we have no idea what happened in, you know, local 29 AD uh, because there isn't AD anymore. Weird. Um, so you, 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 can, you can do any of those sort of three approaches. And I think one of those is probably the one that will work for most games set in most Roman empires. And failing that, you know, you can have King Arthur. I'll also, I'll also ride to the rescue. 
religion, it, ironically, we've kind of come around again in this way. Um, religion, as far as the Romans were concerned, was uh, technology. It, if one god wasn't working out for you, it would be like saying, um, I love my toaster. I love it. Makes the best toast. Perfectly golden. Nice and crispy. Awesome. Right? And you just have to sacrifice a rabbit to it every couple weeks. <laughs> right. That's you know, a small price to pay for good toast. Um, however, with um, this toaster is inadequate to the job of keeping my food from spoiling. Um, therefore, I'm going to go get a different appliance. I'm not going to try to make the toaster. In fact, this is part of Because the they confusion. have better toasters in Greece. Maybe I they understand. did. Right? And, of course, in our modern era, we know far better than to worship technology how many people use Apple. <laughs> um, Just because I make so a sacrifice way, every two years. The way religion gets used in games like D&D is roughly the same. Your cleric is a toolsmith. You know, He has a set of tools that other people don't have that let him do special things. And if you need different tools, then you get a different cleric of a different thing. Like, this is, it, it jives really well. Romans would totally get that. That's why monotheism freaked them out, quite <laughs> frankly. Well, they adopted it near the end. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was working. But it was in a horse race. You were David. the guy who was beaten, so see what you got. Um, it's a simple question. So, um, you guys have given us lots and lots of great sources. Um, but earlier, uh, you mentioned um, uh, sensory input. Yeah. So obviously visuals are pretty easy to come mm -hmm. by. Nice uh, 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 hip for uh, Tumblr. Oh, yeah. I'm definitely going to be looking at that. Cool. Um, but uh, do you have any favorite sources for the other senses? Uh, for the other senses, you almost always have to look at good historical fiction. Um, and a, a good historic, uh, any good fiction writer will tell you what the character is sensing, uh, and that happens more often in genre fiction than not in genre fiction, because most realistic writers, for the most part, will assume that you kind of know what things smell like in the world and won't bother to describe it. But even some of them will. Or, but if you're looking for the specifics of you know what does you know pre-revolutionary France smell like, you get a, a copy of the novel Perfume. And suddenly you are drowned in what pre-revolutionary France smells like. And you can guess. I mean, you can read people's diaries of their trip to Greece. And Greece is probably going to smell about like that without the motor exhaust. Their, their cuisine has pretty much been unchanged since before the Turkish conquest. So there's still going to be olive oil. There's still going to be frying onions. There's still going to be garlic. There's still going to be things that smell. There's still going to be smelling rotten, rotting fish from the wharves. The Mediterranean still smells like the Mediterranean. Just common sense stuff where you look at, you know, where's my game being set? What kind of experiences are likely to have to happen there? And if you're running it in some sort of weird, you know, fantastical version of the Khmer Empire, you can either look up what Cambodia smells like or you can say, I should remember that it smells like something. It smells like cardamom. Or you can look at the children's yeah. book, What Cambodia Smells, smells Like, like yeah. which is, you know, very well, your popular. Geography, your geography right off the bat will give you clues as to the textures and sights and, and sensations. You know, it's humid, it's jungle, it's it smells like victory. on the river, right? Exactly. Yeah. So. Um, so, obviously, we've got to get this information to players somehow. Uh, what, if they're talking to somebody in the world, is, are there any good resources for how much? that person would know depending on their status like if we're talking to an innkeeper what do they know about history and what do they know about the are there any good resources to like what the average person in let's say medieval england knew about 
the wall around them? There are, but they are almost always harder to dig out than it is worth doing. Um, you start doing primary research into levels of knowledge of um, pre or, or borderline literate societies, mm -hmm. you are going to saw your own arm off before you ever get to the part. It's easy. It's the church. Yeah. Well, the uh, but the innkeeper's not in the church, so no, we don't know not. what the innkeeper so knows. Maybe not your most informed but, source on that. Subject. But but you would you, but but you answer the question as what what makes the the story interesting for the players. Do you want the innkeeper to be a, a fund of local knowledge? In which case, yeah, he's probably just an old gossip, or his mom is an old gossip, or someone in the who's always hanging out at the inn drinking is an old gossip. Mm -hmm. That guy's going to know family history going way back, because that's what old gossips know. He'll know, is the road open? And if it's not open, who's closing it? Orcs? Adela the Hun? Romans? Romans with guns? Whatever, right? Well, and you come yeah. back to things like, does he know that the earth goes round the sun? Well, A... In your, you know, story, do people know that? And if if so, do you want him to know it? Is he a heretic who believes that the Earth goes around the sun, and now he will be burned? You know, and the players will have to do. <laughs> oh, reliable narrator. Why did you trick that out of me? <laughs> yes. I've kept my my my, uh, my worship of Nicholas Copernicus a secret for so many years. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I would say with with a question like that, you know, what does X person in in, in the historical setting know, or what? How would they react? Start by answering what makes the story more fun. That's exactly the kind of research that, that just stops games dead. It's like, you know, how tall are doorways in, you know, medieval Spain? It's like, well, you can go start, you know, trying to measure things on, you know, Wikipedia. Or you can say, you can say they're about, <laughs> they're just tall enough that your spears can go through. Right. Next question. Yeah. Yeah. Or buy an Osprey book. They will <laughs> have it fun. all measured out. <laughs> I think. Let's go medieval Spain. I think. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, lonely planets. Um, yeah, I think I think that's about it. Um, thank you all so much for coming out. We really appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thanks very much. Oh dang! We missed our chance to swear a lot right at the. End.